It's 13 years since a radical policy was introduced to reform the way children with high educational needs are schooled. Now a review of that policy is about to go to Cabinet, but there won't be any more money. At present, reports indicate barely half of all schools welcome children with special needs and the sector is marked by underfunding and lack of teacher training. Penny Mackay has been finding how some schools are managing to provide these children with the education they need. Kimiora School in Wellington. 32 students, 5 teachers, 16 teacher aides, $800,000 a year to run. There are 2,000 children in 36 special schools in New Zealand. They cater for the students with the very highest educational needs. Many are physically and or intellectually impaired. Many of them do not talk. Our topic this term is about our bodies and all the parts of our bodies. And so today we're making some funny picture bodies. But Kimiora and schools like it may close and its students may be forced to enter mainstream classes if that's the recommendation of the review. A poster of a funny body with all the different parts. We're just about to add another arm here. But the review has also looked at three other options. Parents continuing to choose between a specialist or mainstream school, the retention of specialist schools only as a base for teachers and resources to feed the mainstream system, and the possibility of parents being able to send their children to a specialist school without having to go through the current assessment. You think you might take it home to show mum? Yeah. One of the reasons parents support the retention of special schools is that they provide a safe, welcoming, quality education for their children. It's no wonder many parents feel like this. An Education Review Office report released last month found up to 50% of mainstream schools fail to do the same thing. The 1989 Education Act states that people with special education needs have the same rights to enrol and receive education at state schools as people who do not. Despite this legal requirement and other human rights legislation passed since then, there's still no obligation on any individual school to accept children from outside the mainstream. So parents can never be sure what kind of a welcome they'll get when they try to enrol their child at the local school. The evaluation that Eero did, where schools self-assess how well they're doing, the fact that 50% of schools think they do all right when disabled children are less likely to leave school with a qualification than any other group tells you their expectations of disabled children are extremely low. Zip. Viv Maderborn is the chief executive of CCS Disability Action. Her organisation carried out preliminary research on the experience of families trying to enrol their disabled child. Its findings reflected international research about the importance of the initial contact. What we learnt from that is that um, the way that a parent and their child is welcomed into a school, by the principal in particular, and by the classroom teacher primarily involved with the child, is incredibly important to whether the family feel their child's needs will be met at the school. And that very few families experience that that happens well. Beautiful, isn't it? It's, I know. It's like, um, not that I've seen an Olympic medal up I know. close, but it looks but it like is it could exactly, be one. It's, 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 yes, Daniel was very proud of it.
Deb Howard shows me the trophies her son Daniel has received for his karate. At 17, Daniel's in a special needs unit attached to a mainstream college, which Deb and her husband Jeff regard as the best of both worlds. But as she explains, while the primary school Daniel attended initially provided him with a good education, that changed when a new principal lacked the same commitment to special education. The teacher treated him as a person who had a disability. He was often excluded. On one occasion I went up to the school and I walked into the library and a library full of books and he was playing with toys that are preschool toys and I'm like, what's he doing this for? Another occasion I arrived at the school and all the other students were up on the top field and Daniel was on the lower court doing nothing. He was just sitting hunkered down. Chris Appleby, whose son Dylan has autism, is another who's also experienced the delight of a welcoming, committed school and the hell of one that isn't. He struggled to cope and he was stood down then after two weeks of school at the age of five. He was only allowed to stay till morning tea time for the rest of the year. He was being really destructive. And he started at his new school the first day of term four and there's never been an incident. They didn't believe me when we said how bad it was. They were sort of looking at us like, yeah, can't, well, we're, we're not seeing this. The chair of the Parent and Family Resource Centre in Onehunga, Colleen Brown, who's also the mother of a son with high needs, says she hears one word from parents time and again. That's the feeling of parents, that they have to feel grateful. They have to feel grateful that they've got resourcing for their children. They feel grateful that the school has accepted their child. They should feel grateful that they've got a good teacher and so on. And this gratitude is like a dead albatross around your neck, I can tell you. The IHC's advocacy director, Trish Grant, says the way many intellectually disabled children are treated in mainstream schools is a clear breach of their human rights. So we have lodged a complaint under Part 1A of the Human Rights Act which is about discrimination. Our argument is that no other child gets sent home at lunchtime, no other child's parents are asked to pay for the extra supports in the classroom, no other child is um, given conditional enrolment at, at school. So we're saying that for disabled children, all these examples of unlawful practice are examples of discrimination. The Associate Minister of Education, Heather Roy, launched the review and says she and her advisory panel kept coming back to one critical factor, the school's attitude. It's not enough for the Education Act to say, schools, you have to enrol a student if they come from your area. What we want is a situation where principals welcome all the students that come through their gates. So what can you do to make sure they do? Oh, I come back to the teacher training. I think the main reason, in my view, that schools are not welcoming is that they have a fear. They don't know how to teach children with special needs in many cases. They don't have the experience that they need. Uh, and the way to get around that, and it's a longer-term plan, is actually to make sure that our young graduates have had experience of special needs, both in the classroom and in a practical sense. Uh, we need to have strong professional development happening in the area of special education, and principals need to be a big part of the, the welcoming of, of students with special needs, as do the boards of trustees. In the meantime, the disparity in the way schools approach special needs education has led to what are known as magnet schools, as Richard Belton, the father of a son with autism spectrum disorder, or ASD, explains. 
those schools that deal well with it, under the current system, essentially get punished for that. And I noticed there was something where a school that was doing well with students with ASD didn't want their name publicised because they knew what would happen. So if you like, in doing your job well, you get punished by the influx of people with ASD. The government provides support for up to 90,000 children with learning or behavioural difficulties. That support is a complex jigsaw of funds and programmes partially administered by the Ministry Unit in Charge of Special Education, known as GSE. It employs 2,000 staff, including psychologists, speech-language, physio and occupational therapists. A further 900 part-time support staff work directly with children. It all costs about $450 million annually, and last year the government tossed another $51 million over four years into the mix. But still, it's not enough. Kerry Lomas is a resource teacher of Learning and Behaviour, or RTLB, whose role it is to guide a group of schools on teaching children with moderate learning and behaviour difficulties, while GSE looks after the children with the highest needs. But she explains that in some parts of the country, there aren't enough GSE employees to do that. Some areas have such an overload of children with severe behaviour that the students need to be picked up by the RTLB because there aren't enough people at the ministry to actually respond. The students with very challenging behaviour have to be responded to first. So the, the students with moderate learning needs are often waiting for a very long time for response. What's, how long? Some of them wait 15 weeks. Kerry Lomas says the funding to back up the RTLB's work is often commandeered by principals. It's really shocking because it's supposed to be a fund that supports RTLB work. So what is the reason for the principals to do this? One principal said, if I have the money, I have the power. There are principals who think that if it's not divided that way that they won't get their share. Each principal is concerned for the students in their school. In yet another organisational layer, an extra source of help that RTLBs can call on is the supplementary learning support role, which entitles children to some extra time with a specialist teacher. Which sounds positive, until Kerry Lomas says of the 92 children in her area eligible for the support this year, two got on that role. The national coordinator of the RTLB Association, Annette MacDonald, explains why. The very nature of that group of kids is that many of them actually don't move, even with highly skilled teaching. You know, some of them have physiological issues, um, some of them may have perhaps fetal alcohol syndrome or something that's really affecting their memories. So it's likely that the group of children that got on the role to start with will, will continue to be on that role until they leave college. So no places are being freed up for the um, new cohorts of children that are coming into school that may, may meet the criteria, but there are no spaces for them. What every teacher, principal and resource teacher hopes is that their high-need students will qualify for ongoing and reviewable resourcing, or OARS, funding. This means a student can get teacher aid time or other specialist help. Applying for OARS is an onerous process, taking up to 30 hours of observation and recording to complete, and one in five applications are turned down.
Principals and resource teachers say the criteria is too narrow and children they believe desperately need specialist help miss out. As the principal from Queenstown School, John Weston, explains. We're stuck in a position where there is a criteria that seems in my mind solely based around ensuring that not too many people get it for the amount of money available because there are a large number of children in my eyes that should be receiving uh, specific support or ongoing support and they just don't get it. The the criteria is very tight. You've got to have issues in in a multitude of domains to, to be accessing it. Heather Roy says she is aware of the problem. I get the same feedback, the criteria are too tough, the benchmarks aren't quite right, and so one of the things that I think probably needs to happen is an external evaluation of of the system. Have we got things right? Are there gaps? Um, For example, one of the the things I hear is that in the communication area there are gaps, students who need additional assistance there. A further problem with the ALLS application appears to be that success sometimes depends on factors other than the needs of the child. Research in 2000 found the number of failed applications from low decile schools and Māori and Pacific students was disproportionately high. In 2004, the Victoria University Law Review said this information supported those who believe the success of many applications is based more on the quality of the application than on the child's needs. Those opinions are backed up by the Parent and Family Resource Centre's Colleen Brown, who frequently helps parents with appeals when their ALLS applications have been turned down. Pākehā parents and Asian parents to a certain degree are more likely to go out there and suss out how things can be done and what, how the system works. Māori and Pacifica parents do not. It became very apparent to me that in Monaco, resourcing was tilted to those people and those schools that could advocate very successfully for their children. Each conventional school in the country gets the special education grant based on a formula of neighbourhood socio-economic level and school population. It's supposed to be spent on children with educational difficulties, but some schools have few or even no student with special needs and principals don't need to account for how the grant is spent. Queenstown Primary School's role of 650 includes three children whose very high needs qualify them for ORS funding, 15 students with moderate difficulties who don't get ORS funding, 70 children getting literacy, numeracy and social skills support, and 60 attending a programme for academically gifted children. The principal, John Weston, says for his school, the Special Education Grant, or SEG, is a joke. So we spent on approximately 130000 last year. And how much did the government...? Just under $24,000. Right, so when you're spending so much of the school's funds on helping children with high needs, what does that mean for what perhaps the children miss out on? Uh, we are very lucky that we can get good funding support from the community, but it comes at uh, a cost. We're choosing to put the money into our children, uh, health furniture in the classrooms. Well, we could be spending on that. It's pretty pretty average, some of that. We have uh, pretty old, old buildings as well, and we haven't spent as much money as we'd like to on that. Richard Belton, who's also the former chair of Autism New Zealand, believes the grant structure is unfair to such magnet schools. I would like funding attached to the student 
so that um, because when you're just dealing with it on a pro rata basis, you know, you're saying, okay, well, you've got your special needs grant, and it's and it's just divvied out amongst as though the incidence of ASD in any school is equal. I mean, that doesn't happen. And if you get the magnet school effect, that happens even less. So I'm saying. Uh, okay, allocate some money to people with Asperger's who currently don't get it or other people with learning needs so that they can take that to the school and the school isn't punished for um, accepting them. Indeed, it's rewarded because it gets the money that's associated with them. Heather Roy says the expectation is that all schools will use their SIG funding for children with educational difficulties. It is supposed to be accountable, but there are ways that get around that. And you're right, there are some schools that are referred to as magnet schools who do a very good job with students with special education, and very often other schools will refer students or families on to them, but they retain the SEG funding. There is some unfairness around that, and that, that certainly is one of the areas that was flagged early on in the, in the review and is being looked at. The review office report found some schools have to fundraise in their local community to help pay for their special needs program. The image of schools holding cake stalls to pay for teacher aids angers many who believe the huge amount of money poured into the special schools could properly resource the mainstream system. An independent researcher who's done work for IHC, Jude MacArthur, says closing the special schools is an idea worth considering. I am aware that there are countries overseas um, where segregated education has been ended um, and where money has been put into a fully inclusive education for all students. Um, and, and I think that in a country like New Zealand where we value equity and social justice that perhaps that's a conversation that we need to be having. And while she understands the tepid reception in many mainstream schools propels parents into the welcoming arms of their closest specialist school, Viv Maderborn of CCS Disability Action agrees they should be closed. We've got to invest in supporting schools and teachers and communities to do inclusion well. At the moment, my fear is what stops us investing well is this kind of mantra about choice. So we pour enormous amounts of money to a very small group of students who get to go to a special classroom or a special school. And if we're doing that at the cost of all the other children, many, many hundreds more, who want to go to their mainstream school, that's not really choice. But a Kimi or a teacher, Jess Hall, while supporting the idea of mainstreaming when possible, shows me a bite on her arm and questions if mainstreaming is for every student. One of my children, their bowels don't work, so he does what I call a fucking corruption every day, maybe three times a day, and it goes everywhere. That happening in a mainstream classroom, and he's 15 years old, it just is not going to gel well with mainstream kids, and the embarrassment and the fear that he would have from doing that. You know, it breaks my heart thinking about him being with other 15-year-olds who has him, you know. Um, you know, I have a, a child with seizures every hour, goes down in a seizure, you know, is that, is that going to work in a mainstream classroom? Another barrier to mainstreaming is that conventional schools often lack the collaboration, both inside and between schools, which would allow teachers to share knowledge, resources and skills. Kathy Wiley is a chief researcher at the independent and partially state-funded Council of Educational Research. She was asked by the government in 2000 to review the special education policy. She says collaboration has improved since then, but could do a lot better. 
there's been quite a lot of work in the last 10 years since I did the review of special education 2000 much more sharing of knowledge. For example, there are resources on autism now that pe people can access, and that's got to improve what they're able to do. So it's that kind of thing that people could be working together more on that, that, that I think could lift what we're able to give to students with special education needs. Where do you think the responsibility for facilitating that lies? It definitely lies uh, with the Ministry of Education. It, it has a leadership role in um, the provision of support for, for teachers who are working with students with special needs. Despite all the challenges, some schools strive to do a good job. One of them is this primary school in Wellington. So much does it believe in collaboration between schools and building capability and special needs education, the principal has asked me not to identify it because he doesn't want the school to be promoted as the best one in the area. may need withdrawal for specialist literacy and numeracy support, possibly some life skills work, some communication, but then at other times the best place for that child is with their peers and learning from their peers. So it really depends on the needs of the child. Mandy Searcy is the Special Education Needs Coordinator at this primary school. She also says collaboration and time for collaboration between and within schools is essential and if done well will iron out many problems. We really have to create a collaborative environment and that's everyone in the team, the GSC people, the parents, maybe interested family members, the staff and the teacher aides, we call them teaching assistants at the school. Now everyone in that team is valued and important and I think through developing that collaborative environment you're really there to address a lot of the issues. Mandy Searcy's principal, Alan Fleming, says the commitment the school has to educating its special needs pupils rather than just getting them to fit in is the reason it's so successful. We're a learning-focused school. After that, if they need physiotherapy or speech-language therapy or whatever else they might need, that's, that's added into the mix. But we're learning first, and, and I believe that's where the success of our program has come from. We can demonstrate children making progress in their learning, they know that they're learning, they feel success, they're willing, they take risks and you see this person that possibly people might have thought was unteachable blossoming into a, a, a member of a school learning community. Mm. It's a powerful village. Another school appearing to manage well the provision of education to high-needs children is Paraparumu College on the Kapiti Coast. It has a high-needs unit which gives students a base from which they flow back and forth to mainstream classes. How many students are here altogether? 1,400 in the school. Maria Nichols is the teacher in charge of the high-needs unit at Paraparumu College. In our classroom yeah. there is up to 14. It sort of well, it varies greatly during the day, of course, and, and sometimes week to week. Maria Nichols believes putting children with educational difficulties into conventional classes benefits mainstreamers as well. I think it's because they're getting to know all aspects of society, all aspects of it, and being able to say hi to a young man with downs down at the mall or it's very easy for them to do all those sorts of things now. They're more accepting of difference. And Paraparaumu College Principal Richard Campbell says that ease in learning to mix with all types of people benefits all students. One of the key attitudes you've got to have is being able to work with others. 
and that's a critical skill that, that our employers are saying if you've got those skills then that's a, a real feather in your cap and access um, workplaces quite easily. But providing a special education program is not easy. The funding that we get either in terms of staffing or in, in actual direct uh, funding for special needs are significantly supplemented from the operations grant. A considerable amount of our special education grant goes towards meeting the needs in the unit and we are still putting money out in terms of support mechanisms for other students with special needs. We've just created a learning centre which has both professional and support staff in it for those students who may have particular learning or behavioural difficulties and that's a different unit to the high needs programmes and that is resource hungry. Despite the money it gobbles up, Richard Campbell's philosophy is that we are all in this together and that applies to school as well. Colleen Brown from the Parent and Family Resource Centre says during his time at school, her son Travis probably educated and made normal his disability for hundreds of future employers, just by being in class with them. In a study for the IHC, researcher Jude MacArthur found children with disabilities do better educationally and socially at a conventional school. Students who attend their local school and include a fully inclusive um, regular education are much better prepared educationally, socially and in terms of their capacity to make that transition into adult life and be fully participating members of our local communities. The IHC's Trish Grant says it's not special education as much as inclusive education that's needed. Every teacher should be educated in their initial training and ongoing professional development to know how to teach all children leave no child out in the classroom. This is about basic, you know, the science and art of teaching should be about knowing how to teach every child regardless of their ability, disability, background, advantages or disadvantages. That may sound an impossible goal for a single classroom teacher, but Victoria University lecturer Liz Mannins explains how it can be done. There are not separate ways of teaching a child with autism or teaching a child with Down syndrome or a child indeed who has gifts and talents. There are just continuums of effective teaching that we need to apply to individual students. And in the case where that is, is quite demanding for one reason or another, then we need to have problem solving and we need to have ways of, of looking at that child within the classroom environment and see what's working and what's not and discover ways that we can make adaptions. Liz Mannon says inclusive education is about giving the disabled child the option of attending a conventional class at their local school if they wish and not having that decision taken away from them by a lack of resources or commitment. Sean, a young man with Asperger's syndrome, says he was lost in the school system until a teacher allowed him to map his answers rather than write them conventionally. He says teachers need to modernise their practice. There are different styles of learning, different genres of education. And as soon as they figure out that they've only been teaching in one sort of genre for something like the last 100 years, then they can finally start to realise that they can start developing a different type of learning teaching tool for all these other people that don't fit this one ABC category that they've been using.
But that could take years, and in the meantime, the head of the Special Schools Principals Association, Erin Cairns, has a vision of teachers in schools like hers moving around the mainstream offering their expertise. It would be absolutely wonderful for the young people in the mainstream schools because then we would be able to enskill their teachers and teacher aides so they would be able to achieve learning outcomes. Mm. And do you feel confident that your teachers could cover the whole array of children with special needs from, say, children with physical disabilities, autism, speech, language, through to behavioural challenges, all that sort of thing? Yes, I do. With two new Kimi Aura units being built in Wellington for $10 million, it seems unlikely the government will close special schools and bolster the mainstream instead. But perhaps a future review office report will show many more conventional schools have been shamed into adopting an inclusive attitude anyway. Whatever the outcome of the review, one thing that remains certain is the demand for extra funding will remain constant while the money available will remain tight and many schools may be holding cake stalls for some time yet. That programme was written and presented by Penny Mackay. It was produced by Philip Atolli with technical production by William Saunders.